When we think about New Orleans, we think about the vibrant colors, we think about the food, and we think about Mardi Gras, of course. It's a melting pot of culture that includes Cajun, Creole, Caribbean, Southern, French, African, Spanish. New Orleans is a place that loves embracing its culture, or should I say cultures, since there are so many different ethnic groups residing together. That's what makes it an amazing example for Creolization. For those of you listening that don't know, Creolization is a process through which elements of different cultures are blended together to create a new culture. Like I said before, New Orleans is bursting at the seams with varying ethnicities. But how did it get this way? To understand how New Orleans became this amazing city, we have to see how it all started. In the late 17th century, French explorers claimed the land that we now know as New Orleans as their own. The city was founded in 1718 by the French, but 50 years later, in 1768, Spain took over the French Quarter and claimed it until the early 19th century, at which point New Orleans was sold to the United States in 1803 in the event that is historically known as the Louisiana Purchase. After this, Americans were migrating to New Orleans. It's at this point in history that the city's architecture started to represent the diversity of the people living in it. The original buildings and mansions are a result of the slave trade and the ever-growing sugar business of the 18th and 19th centuries. Though the history of how the buildings were erected is not a cheery one, New Orleans embraces their beauty and what they represent for the original settlers. Buildings aren't the only thing that were blended in New Orleans either. With so many different cultures living in proximity to each other, it's impossible to avoid the cultural blending. If there's one thing New Orleans is known for, it's the amazing food that's made every day. You can't go to New Orleans and eat just fast food. That should honestly be considered a crime in my opinion. I personally have never had the honor and privilege of trying the cuisine, but I can only imagine the number of flavors coming from every dish. Something that makes this food so special is that they're sometimes tied to old customs. For example, red beans and rice is a dish that most restaurants will serve on Mondays in New Orleans. It's a meal that's associated with Haitians and Cubans because of the red beans. Monday was considered wash day in New Orleans, where everyone did their laundry for the week. And since red beans and rice were a fairly quick and easy dish to make, that's what the people of New Orleans did while they washed clothes. This, of course, was before washing machines and dryers, but even so, the tradition still stuck despite the technological advancements. Another example is gumbos or herbs. This dish that contains mostly vegetables and some meat is derived from a, le a green leaf stew that traces back to West Africa, though its modern take is a Creole dish. It was eaten on Holy Thursday, right before Good Friday, back when New Orleans was being run by the French Catholics. Once again, the times have changed, but the tradition remains that gumbos and herbs are usually eaten on Holy Thursdays. The list of amazing food goes on and on, but the point I'm trying to make is that these dishes wouldn't have been possible if creolization never happened in New Orleans. Some people fear culture blending because they're scared that their original customs and traditions will get lost in translation, or be altered beyond recognition. However, I believe in the contrary. I think that culture blending emphasizes a person's roots, highlighting what makes their culture so great. This is most prominent in the beautiful music that comes from the streets of New Orleans. New Orleans and music. Those two just go together like peanut butter and jelly. If the food doesn't keep you there, I promise you the music will. But let me backtrack to how it all started. In 1835, there was a place in New Orleans called Congo Square. This is where African slaves sang and danced together on Sundays. What made this gathering so significant is that white composers also practiced their music there as well. So with African music and European brass band music being played at the same time, eventually those two sounds became one. 
This is why New Orleans was the perfect place for jazz music to make its great debut to the world. This happened around the 1890s. There are many names for it. There's ragtime, hot music, ratty music, but the sound remains the same. Musicians from New Orleans left the city and went around the U.S. spreading this new form of music. At first, it wasn't accepted by everyone. In fact, I heard from a previous music professor of mine that jazz comes from the term jazz, which is spelled J-A-S-S, and it was a reference to male semen, a disrespect to the music. In other words, jazz wasn't seen as the art form that it is today. However, as time went on, it became harder and harder to deny its greatness, especially when different cultures kept combining their music with that of New Orleans. Sicilians, for example. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, a great migration took place from Sicily to New Orleans because of their cotton and fruit trades with each other. With this migration taking place, a lot of New Orleans jazz was modeled after Sicilian music. The band known as the original Dixieland Jazz Band, jazz being spelled J-A-S-S, actually, combined, actually contained two men whose parents were Sicilian migrants, Nick LaRocca the leader and Tony Barbaro the drummer. Another example of creolization in New Orleans music is the influence that came from Cuban music. African Americans began incorporating Afro-Cuban motifs into their music in the 19th century. The music was called Habanera, and it gained an immense amount of popularity. It was the first written music to be rhythmically based on an African motif, and it found its alternate home in Crescent City.